From the moment the news broke that the Titan submersible went missing on its descent down to see the Titanic, there was relentless 24-7 news coverage. The internet became completely consumed, unable to tear itself away from the unfolding events. In response to the tragedy, social media memes began to kick into overdrive, with some even reveling in the downfall of the billionaires on board by posting eat the rich jokes. Meanwhile, there were those online who questioned the huge disparity in media attention between the Titan submersible and the tragic sinking of a migrant boat. Today we're asking, why are we so obsessed with these global disaster stories? Are all disasters created equal? And have these tragedies become a form of entertainment? Join us as we go straight to the comments. So just a quick disclaimer, if my voice sounds a little bit weird at the moment, it's because I've had a, a cold all week. So oh. I'm sat here with Lemsip. Oh, bless. I wish I could get Lemsip in Norway. I really miss it. They just give you ginger and honey. It's just old school. Oh. Well, the global media has been completely obsessed with the Titan substory and the billionaire passengers. There's been wall-to-wall front page coverage. There's been an international rescue mission involving four countries and potentially millions of dollars. And everyone, including even the director of the movie Titanic, James Cameron himself, has weighed in on the tragedy. As Bryony Clark wrote in The Guardian, passengers aboard the sub lost on a dive to the Titanic became characters in a tragic drama. The rest of us were spectators. But the spectrum reactions have ranged from shock and concern to a certain schadenfreude-driven glee based on the wealth of those on board and reports that the owners of the Titan, Oceangate, had built a subpar vessel and ignored safety warnings. Within hours of it going missing, memes started spreading rapidly on TikTok, Twitter and Instagram, mocking the situation, including I have nothing to say but eat the rich, which refers to a political slogan associated with anti-capitalism and class warfare. And you know, in one TikTok video uploaded on Tuesday, it had 1.4 million views and it said, it's crazy to think we might only have another 30 hours or so of being able to make fun of the people on the submarine an apparent reference to the hours of oxygen left um, for the passengers, which I thought was really, really twisted and dark. Mm. You know, alongside that, in what you could call one of life's strange coincidences, another sea-based disaster had taken place just two days prior to that. There was a mm. refugee fishing boat that sank in the Mediterranean. Um, it had an estimated 750 people on board, but unfortunately only 104 were rescued. And the International Organization for Migration actually called it one of the worst sea tragedies in the last decade. So, I mean, there was quite a stark contrast in terms of scale of rescue effort and press coverage between the two events. And this led to a lot of people making the point that Western society places very different values on life for the wealthy versus the poor. So there was a tweet that said, last week, a boat carrying approximately 750 desperate refugees sank off the coast of Greece. Only 104 survived. Today, a search is on for a submersible carrying five wealthy individuals in the Atlantic. Both are tragedies, but one achieved hour-to-hour media coverage. Guess which? Yeah, and that was incredibly tragic. And even Barack Obama has questioned this disparity, saying, but the fact that this has got so much more attention and the fact that 700 people sank is an untenable situation. In some ways, it's indicative of the degree to which people's life chances have grown so disparate. However, other commentators have pointed out the difference in the stories, and this, there was this comment on the Mail Online. The difference is time. The Titan disaster was an edge-of-your-seat horror show that gripped the world because it had the chance to do so. Had the implosion been confirmed when they say it supposedly happened, it would have hit the news, then disappeared onto the next headline. Yeah, and um, you know, as we've said, it's, it's been a huge global story, so I'm sure a lot of you know the basic details, but Lisa, 
I know you've actually been following this story quite intently. Can you fill us in just very quickly a, a, a bit on the backstory? Yeah, I'll try and give a very brief timeline. So yes, on Sunday, June the 18th, OceanGate's Titan submersible, or I can call it sub, loses contact with its mothership, Polar Prince, one hour, 45 minutes into its descent to the Titanic. It's then reported missing after eight hours to the US Coast Guard. The Titan had only 96 hours worth of oxygen, which would approximately last until um, 12 o'clock or 12pm on Thursday, the 22nd of June. And obviously there was a huge international search and rescue operation put into motion. Um, There were five people on board, the pilot and four passengers. The pilot was OceanGate CEO Stockton Rush. There was French diver and Titanic expert Paul Henry Nagalay, British businessman Hamish Harding, and Pakistani investor Shahzada Darwood and his 19-year-old son, Suleiman. On Tuesday night, sonar equipment detected banging noises, sparking hope that those aboard the Titan were still alive. But on Thursday, 6pm UK time, a robotic vehicle discovered the tail cone of the Titan on the ocean floor, followed by the front and back ends of the Titan's hull, not that far from the actual Titanic wreck, and the pilot and four passengers in the missing submersible are believed to be dead. We also find out post this discovery that the US Navy detected the likely implosion of the Titan sub on an underwater sound monitoring device shortly after it disappeared, although this was never made public. So, I mean, that's that's a really good, concise timeline of the events. And obviously, there are loads more details for people who wanted to follow the story. But, yeah. you know, for us, our, our focus is always the reactions to the story. Yeah. I think that we need to start by saying, why do we become so transfixed or sort of fascinated by these disasters and tragedies? Why do they make such big news? Well, you know, there have been various studies that have investigated how there's there's a negative bias in people. That refers to our sort of collective hunger to hear and remember bad news. So, for example, researchers at McGill University found that participants, they often chose stories with a negative tone rather than neutral or positive stories, even though they'd actually said that they preferred good news themselves. And there are various explanations for this. Uh, You know, the human brain is essentially wired to be hypersensitive Mm. to danger. And so disasters do get our attention. And it's useful because we've evolved to to react quickly to potential threats. And that that makes sure that we stay safe. It keeps us alive. It's completely um, adaptive evolutionary-wise. There's also that element of um, curiosity. So Matthew Goldfein, who's a clinical psychologist, said, this is something across the board with humans in general. Anyone who's driving on the highway and sees an accident slows down to rubberneck and find out what happened. I find that term rubbernecking so strange. Like I, mm. I know what it is, but I think in the UK we would say, oh, it's gawping or even being a bit ghoulish. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely US slang um, and, and it, it it's inspired by this sort of idea of someone craning their neck and having a really flexible neck so they can look at everything. But the reason that we're so focused on accidents or tragedies is we want to know exactly what happened so that we can work out how we would do it differently. We can assure ourselves that we would have survived in that mm-hmm. situation. It makes us feel safer. So there was a comment on Cora that, um, you know, basically outlined this and I said, we're fascinated with natural disasters for the same reason we're fascinated with true crime. We wonder how we would react and how to protect ourselves from the disasters we're watching or reading about. Mm-hmm. While I'm watching people prepare for Hurricane Dorian, I'm wondering how I would put up something to protect my windows and where I'd go if I had to evacuate. And the same person goes on to say, 
It also, I hope, makes us grateful for the things we do have, no matter how small or insignificant they may seem at the moment. It reminds us that things could be so very much worse. And I think that's an important point um, and something that hopefully a lot of people take away from that. But how much do you think these, these aspects played a role in the Titan disaster? I mean, what had you gripped the news? My dad actually worked in a role directly sort of connected to the legacy of the Titanic um, tragedy. And as many of us know, when the Titanic sank, it led to sweeping changes in safety regulations and particularly in communication sort of requirements for ships at sea. And that included ships being required to have 24-hour radio communications. So a radio operator had to be on duty at all times, which was what my dad did, obviously, in split shifts <laughs> with someone else. So the people, you know, so, so just to, to explain, so the people that did all the radio communications back in the 1670s, they were still working on Morse codes and telegrams when he started out, which is where you get that famous SOS signal, you know, for a ship at distress, which is the dot, 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 dash, dash, dash dot, 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 if I've done yeah, that Yeah, right. yeah, no, I'm sure we did that in the brownies. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And in fact, he would come home, you know, he'd spend months at sea and then come back and sort of regale all these tales. And I think that's where I've always had that fascination with the sea. And he actually did work on a diving support ship. So he would tell me a lot about the deep sea divers and all the details about how they would get ready to go down to the sort of ocean floor, including being 30 days in what they call saturation chambers. And then they take 12 hours to get from the diving bell down to the ocean floor. And you really need um, nerves of steel. And it's just an extremely dangerous business. And he also told me some strange occurrences that would happen at sea. Like, um, I think someone fell off a ship once. And it's just so difficult to find people once they go overboard. Mm. And I think that was a lost cause. And just generally, I think you and I, we both talked a lot about there's so much danger at sea and sort of mystery. Yeah. I think that's what drew me to the story. Is And also, you know, there's this feeling of like, is this happening again? Is the Titanic, is there some sort of curse on it? But I also think it has a lot of the elements of a blockbuster sort of movie. Yeah, I completely agree. And there was an article by Pam Rutledge in Psychology Today, and she said, it has extreme tourism, it has billionaires, mysteries, explosions, search and rescue missions, as well as the mythology of the Titanic. So, I mean, it pretty much ticked all the boxes. But not all tragedies capture the collective imagination in the same way. Others go by relatively unnoticed, as some people were highlighting with the juxtaposition of the Titan substory um, sort of versus the migrant boat story. And I read this man online comment that said, I think it's called compassion fatigue. There's only a certain amount of sympathy people can have, whereas the Titan disaster was a one-off, hopefully. And I think that they are basically saying that with the migrant boat sinking, it's part of a sort of a series of tragic boat sinkings that have happened previously and therefore seen as less rare and less newsworthy, as, as sad as that is. You know, absolutely. I think that's definitely one aspect of it. You know, the more unusual or, or um, unexpected an event is, it becomes much more newsworthy and more likely to get our attention. So, for example, if someone famous like John Lennon gets shot somewhere that, you know, we considered relatively safe, so a very expensive part of New York, it's definitely more of a surprise than if someone completely unknown gets shot in a poorer part of Mexico, somewhere where there is already gun crime on a daily basis. Mm. And unfortunately, part of that is about the victim profile. So for example, you know, there's this phrase called um, missing white woman syndrome. It mm. was coined by Gwenefil at a 2004 journalism conference, and it's now widely used to describe the disparity in media coverage that missing young, conventionally attractive white women receive 
over missing uh, people of colour. And there was a 2013 study that found evidence of this, that news outlets covered missing white women and girls significantly more often and more intensely than anyone else. Mm. And a really good real life example of this is Madeleine McCann, um, who I'm sure everyone's aware of. I mean, she's one of the most famous missing people uh, in the world. She was blonde, blue-eyed, female, and a daughter of middle-class parents. And what was interesting is on the exact same day, there was a little boy who also went missing, Daniel Entwistle. Mm-hmm. He went missing on the same day, but didn't get anywhere near as much publicity. Mm-hmm. And the difference was he was male and he was from a working-class family. But the thing is, with the Titan, there was actually no attractive white women no. on board. <laughs> no, there, there isn't. But in the case of the Titan sub-disaster, there is a massive wealth disparity. Uh, at least two of the passengers were billionaires, but all of them were rich. Pam Rutledge said, many people envy wealth with a mixture of curiosity and envy. Based on ratings of shows like Real Housewives, there is a voyeuristic fascination with the rich. People also like to see wealthy people get pulled off their pedestals. Uh, When rich and privileged people run into trouble or behave badly and get caught, we feel better because it shows that underneath it all, they're normal and mortal, cracking the veneer of privilege, and it makes us feel less inferior. Absolutely. And that is reflected in the comments. One tweet said, they're billionaires. They absolutely deserve their fate. And Mm. another tweet, see, rich bastards always think rules don't apply to them, that rules and laws are for the small people. How has trying to defy the laws of physics working out for you? Another tweet, Admitted is foul, but most people assume that most billionaires are part of the elite and are always supporting initiatives that hurt the average working person. Look at how the rich got richer during the pandemic. Classic schadenfreude. Yeah. Jessica Merrick, who's a Pennsylvania State University professor who studies the psychology of media use, she explained this by saying, making memes about this event, especially early on before there was any bad ending, is likely a direct response to the past decade of news coverage heralding billionaire explorers with their own companies, so think SpaceX, Blue Origin, etc., by showing that money alone may not make someone a hero or smart or successful. And this, of course, is um, referring to the billionaire space race, which seemed to heat up during lockdown while the rest of us were locked away. You know, and I think that's something that you, you followed, right? I really did. And I just always love this joke about the ex-wife of Jeff Jeff Bezos. You know, she got that huge payout when they got divorced. And someone wrote a meme saying, oh my gosh, imagine getting all that money and then your ex literally fucks off the planet. (laughs) Yeah, double tick. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, yes, we've been really bombarded with sort of all these stories about how touched billionaires are from the average person. And um Actually, when researching this episode, I didn't realise that Jeff Bezos's personal wealth almost doubled during the pandemic. And, you know, in something yeah. that actually effectively destroyed lives and livelihoods of millions. And people right now, we're in this cost of living crisis. It feels really tough. So I think it feels particularly irritating to people who are struggling to see these billionaires spending vast amounts of money on something that is tantamount to extreme tourism. Yeah. And I think this is echoed in this tweet. So this billionaire space race is nothing more than a dick measuring contest between Musk, Bezos and Branson. They're not investing billions to forward science or the bounds of human possibility. They're doing it to be the first rich guy to bounce around uselessly up there. (laughs) That just makes me think of Tigger bouncing around on his tail. I know. They're all just bouncing from planet to planet. (laughs) And and I think that seems to be playing a role in the reactions to this Titan story. And Boris Johnson, he sort of stepped out and said, look, the Titan V died in a cause, pushing out the frontiers of human knowledge. However, 
Charles Haas, president of the Titanic International Society, set up in 1989 to preserve the history of the Titanic, he said, it's time to consider seriously whether human trips to Titanic's wreck should end in the name of safety, with relatively little remaining to be learned from or about the wreck. But I've also seen a lot of commentators say this expedition seems nothing but just extreme tourism. They said, there's something that makes me distinctly uncomfortable about wealthy tourists going to the Titanic wreck just because they can. There's certainly no longer any real scientific benefit to be gained from such thrill-seeking. And that sort of brings up, is it appropriate to go and visit the Titanic wreck or should it be left alone in peace? Um, Well, I think the main point is really more about the safety that's involved to go and visit it because, I mean, tourism exists everywhere. I mean, I've been to the the pyramids in Egypt. I've been to Père Lachaise, which is the um, historic cemetery in uh, Paris where there's Oscar Wilde. And that's quite a natural thing for people to do. I think it's it's all about whether you do it, you know, respectfully. I'm not having a picnic on someone's grave or anything. But in this case, there is a big risk in going down there. And that yeah. seems to be, I would say that's more relevant than the fact that it's a graveyard, personally. Yeah, it's interesting because I asked my dad his opinion and he said, I do see it as a site of great tragedy and just to leave it in peace. Yeah. And you just got to remind yourself it costs $250,000 per person, which is £195,000 to go down to visit this wreck. Yeah. And that's a lot of money, you know, uh, a lot of money that most people don't have um, mm. just just for the things they actually need. And on top of this schadenfreude towards billionaires, there's also a, a real moral judgment on the hubris aspect. So mm. like Icarus, who died when he flew too close to the sun. Um, I mean, one of the casualties, Stockton Rush, who who was you know, the CEO of Oceangate, uh, the company responsible, he'd claimed in a 2017 interview with CBS that the carbon fiber submodel was pretty much invulnerable, mm. which is quite a statement to make. But since then, it's now come out that former employees, industry leaders, and deep sea explorers had all tried to raise safety concerns as long ago as 2018, and that the company had just completely ignored them. And this weirdly mirrors the actual tragedy of the Titanic itself the wreck that they were going to go visit. So Shane Tilton, who's an associate professor of multimedia journalism at Ohio University, he said people are also drawn to this story specifically because history is repeating itself, basically. Mm. The Titanic was this luxury cruise that basically risked everything, went way too fast, was way too reckless. And at the end, it became a death sentence for those on it, much like this Titan sub. The memes kind of make themselves because you have a parallel story that makes it very easy to tell and very easy to communicate. Absolutely. And an aspect that I really found fascinating was the role of James Cameron in all of this. You know, we know him as the filmmaker behind Titanic, but he's almost become like inseparable from the Titanic and its wreckage. Mm. And I didn't realise, you know, in researching this episode, I found out he's visited a incredible 33 times the Titanic wreck and even contributed to the creation of a submersible called Deep Sea Challenger. And this sub was used to explore the ocean floor of the Mariana Trench, which is the deepest known trench on earth. So he's got extensive diving experience. Yeah. And I I don't know if you remember, but he did another film that was sort of based on this as well, like The Abyss. Exactly. And I think he's got like this role where he's really cultivated this profound fascination surrounding the Titanic. And I think it's unsurprising that he was—he sort of became the go-to person for this recent event. He was actually silent on the issue until they sort of concluded the search and they started finding the sub um, debris. 
um, on June the 22nd. And lots of people on Twitter were eagerly waiting for his response and inquiring even about a potential film adaptation. Wow. And I think, yeah, it's, it's, it's insane, really. And I think with the insatiable demand for content on this story, I mean, the media was really sort of tirelessly pursuing every conceivable angle. And this included sort of exploring counts of individuals who sort of contemplated going on this ill-fated voyage to people that had been on it before and had mishaps, to even social media interactions of the passengers' relatives. Yeah, they, they really went deeply in. But I don't think it's true to say that people are only interested in disasters that affect the rich. So, I mean, you know, one of the major draws of this of a story like this is that it's happening in real time before our eyes, that there's still a possibility of rescue. And essentially that we're dealing with the unknown. So there's, there's an air of mystery around it. And there was mm. this comment that said, it was due to the fact that it was drawn out over a number of days. If it had been reported as five people had died on day one, there would not have been the coverage. Think of the Chilean miners or the Thai children in the cave. Mm. And those were also really big stories at the time um, and in- involved people who weren't rich. And on the one hand, I think people are metaphorically holding their breaths and hoping for a miracle. Because we've been conditioned to expect that from Hollywood disaster movies. We want there to be a rescue because it makes us feel safer that, that if we were in such a situation, we would also be rescued. But are the memes that were generated in response to this tragedy, are they just schadenfreude or does some dark humour play a different role? Well, I think it's really difficult to answer that because, I mean, you'd have to judge it on a case by case basis. So... As a society, I mean, we've, we've used the words appropriate already. We definitely have a shared expectation on what's considered appropriate or inappropriate reactions to things like tragedy, to grief, to loss, you know, all these things. And actually, that makes me think of people calling out the stepson of one of the passengers because he was publicly flirting with an OnlyFans model moments after asking for prayers for his sort of stricken relative. And he was also criticised for going to a Blink-182 concert while the search was underway. Even Cardi B weighed in tweeting, you're supposed to be at the house, sad. You're supposed to be crying for me. You're supposed to be right next to the phone, waiting to hear about any updates about me. You're supposed to be consoling your mum. But he defended his actions by saying, it might be distasteful being here, but my family would want me to be at the Blink-182 show as it's my favourite band and music helps me in difficult times, exclamation mark. It's so hard to really judge what's appropriate because it's different for each person and each family and each in, you know, group. I think shock can also definitely play a role. And this famously played a role in the, I don't know if you've heard of the Lindy Alexander case yeah. uh, in Australia. She was, you know, it was the, the dingo ate my baby, I think it was called. But she was wrongfully convicted and later exonerated for the murder of her daughter, who was attacked and taken by a dingo. Um, and Dr. Leah Williams, a lecturer in criminology and criminal law, she pointed out she didn't cry enough or she didn't seem sad enough all the judgments made about character then feed into perceptions of criminal guilt. So um, people can definitely have a view that there should be no humour around anything tragic. But Vivian Ephraimson Abt, a manager of wellbeing initiatives at the Colorado State University Health Network, she said, we can use humour to cope with life, the mundane, the ridiculous, inequities and tragedies. And gallows humour, which... um, is a term that it refers to the enjoyment of dark and twisted humour that takes its name from those about to be hanged. And studies have actually shown that this kind of humour, this kind of banter, it can serve as, as, as a common psychological weapon among surgeons, firemen, cops, all the first responders. 
and that it serves as a way of coping with trauma and keeping the darkness at bay. On Big Think, Johnny Thompson describes three theories that best explain gallows humour. So the superiority theory, and it says that we find things funny by asserting our dominance over the mocked item. So when you laugh at taboos or death, mm-hmm. it's, it's a way of telling the world, oh, they don't have power over us. And then relief theory, it says we laugh to vent the anxiety or stress at something. Um, we make the sick jokes because their content is actually deeply traumatic and we're trying to relieve our fear of it. And then benign violation theory says that jokes are a way to violate taboos in a safe way. We can say, I'm joking after saying something hugely inappropriate and mostly be let off the hook. Mm. I think that's a very British thing, isn't it? We really, really love dark humour. Mm. I know you've got a really dark sense of humour, don't you? I mean, has that ever got you into trouble? Yeah, I mean, so the, the dark humour comes from my mum, and it's always been a bonding experience between her, myself, and my sister. And um, as as you know, Lisa, but the listeners won't know, uh, my mum actually passed away unexpectedly just over a month ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was actually one of the reasons that we took a slightly longer break than we'd planned between seasons because, you know, this had happened. And and also, what I mean, I really wasn't following the Titan story as it happened because my life was you know, so much was going on and it was, it, it didn't seem that important to me at the time. Um, there was just too much, mm. but she'd had a massive stroke and, um, I jumped on a plane and we had about five days with her before she passed away. And, you know, the weirdest thing was that, I mean, she was in the hospital, but not only was she cracking jokes while in there. So, um, when my sister arrived, she, she said to her, oh, well, I'm probably not going to be up to skydiving next week. And <laughs> and also, you know, when we were finally told it was definitely end of life, you know, and it was just mm. waiting and we were keeping vigil. And then also in the weeks after when we were planning the funeral, my sister and I, we, we kept cracking jokes with one another. It was sort of a coping strategy. And I think there was part of us that were really worried that other people would think that we were being inappropriate and that somehow, you know, because a lot of people immediately afterwards, they go, are you okay? Are you okay? And sometimes, you know, and apparently it's very normal. The, the first bit, sometimes till after the funeral, sometimes till much later, you, you almost go numb. So you're not constantly crying. Some people do and that's fine. But you worry that other people, if, you know, when people are asking, are you okay? That if you're not crying or you're like not, not getting out of bed, mm-hmm. That then somehow you didn't love her. Somehow, somehow, you know, you're cold and heartless, and 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 it somehow undermines the relationship you had. Mm. When actually, I mean, my mom and I, we were incredibly close. We used to to actually speak every day, um, even though we lived in different countries. So, you know, I was so shocked when this happened. You know, because I'd only just met your mum, and I knew how important she was when I was in York, and I actually felt guilty. I said to you, "Oh, I feel guilty because I forced her to watch Grey Gardens with us." <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which is one of my all-time yeah. favourite films with yeah. Drew Barrymore and Jessica Lang, and I just thought it was a brilliant story of a mother and a daughter, yeah, um, just like <laughs> toddling around on their own in a dilapidated. I think there was an element you were like, <laughs> guys, this might be your future. You're going to be feeding raccoons in as, as your house falls down <laughs> around you, like doing weird yeah. dance routines. And I was like, yeah, I mean, it's possible. <laughs> I can see that. But she was loving it. She kept pausing it and doing really great observations. Yeah. And I was like, 
I can see where you got that from. You know that she's so insightful. Yeah. She was so witty and so funny and self-referential. I just love being around her. And I'll never forget when she drove me and dropped me off at the uh, at the train station. She was so low riding in her car <laughs> like a gangster <laughs> and, and went see ya. And like it's just like she seemed like a woman who had many many years ahead of her. That's the thing that was so shocking. Yeah, and I think that is that is the thing that is you know to I think both me and my sister and. To and still are in shock because, I mean, we she wasn't like super fit and healthy, but we really thought she had another decade. So I don't think I think it takes a long time for your brain to come to cope with such a big, massive change. And you know, we were often in different countries. So so for me, I'm like she could just be in Australia. Mm. And and I think humor. I mean, I think it's just a way to cope with the unknown. Which I have to be honest, for myself included it's truly terrifying as the unknown not no i mean you know i like to plan things and i can be flexible but we don't know what our future is and that's really scary and it brings up your own mortality as well and i mm. think um the late joan rivers uh she also i mean she joked about her own husband's suicide mm. and she said if you can laugh at it you can deal with it and don't start telling me that i shouldn't be saying it that's the way i do it i would have been laughing at auschwitz and um yeah, I mean, I, I get what she's saying. And uh, Psychology Today, there was an article that said, comedy doesn't go away at times of death. It just takes a macabre turn. So I would say for myself personally, I, I really try and judge who'll be able to understand my humor and who won't. So, I mean, me and my sister are on the same page. And we also, we know how much we loved and still love our mom. So it's not going to be taken wrongly. Mm. But I think the aim is never to hurt another person with the humor that they shouldn't be the butt of the joke you shouldn't be demeaning them you shouldn't be like wishing their death you know it, it's that's I never want to hurt someone else with humor that's not it's really more for me to cope with the issue mm. you know mm. and I think that really goes to the core of like the jokes that people are making about this or this mm. disaster and, and disasters in general in your view do you think they're an attempt at coping with this overwhelming emotion? Or, you know, is a is it a cruel meme at the expense of someone else? Well, uh, Katie Watson from the Hastings Centre, she, she conducted a study on gallows humour in medicine. And what she said was, deciding when gallows humour is okay turns on the ethical question, when is joking a form of abuse, of a patient, of trust or of power? A joke about a patient's condition told in front of the patient or the patient's family is unethical because it has the potential to harm them. Whereas backstage humor, which is just between professionals, you know, not in front of the, the patients, mm -hmm. if that doesn't harm anyone, it can, it can actually help the residents integrate terrible events and get through the shift. In those cases, the butt of the doctor's joke isn't the patient, it's death itself. Mm. And I think that's quite a good way of judging um, where the line is. But in the Titan 5 case, though, we're talking about jokes on social media posted publicly that the families of the missing or like now dead passengers can see and cause them actually incredible distress. And some, like we said, were even wishing death on them. Mm. And social media seems to drive these kind of responses because as Susa Shiner, technology industry analyst at C4 Trends points out, people can spout off anything with just a click and hide behind a wall of anonymity. No direct human interaction is required and there's no sense of responsibility or fear of accountability. And technology entrepreneur Lon Safko 
author of the Social Media Bible, also says it's also about narcissism. Oh look, 79 people like my snarky posts. It's a form of heckling and getting attention. The bigger the story, the more attention can be diverted from the story to them personally, which is what I think that I saw a lot going on on social media. In this particular case, yeah, no, I I think that's true. I mean, I wasn't following in real time, as I've said, but yeah. Um, And Pam Rutledge again, um, she called this, um, which is a phrase I just think is amazing, but she called it the entertainmentification of tragedy on social Mm. media. And there are people, you know, there are plenty of people also speaking out against this. So there was a tweet that said, Two of the people on the Titanic submarine are a father and his teenage son. His wife and daughter are back home absolutely terrified. Sorry to be a buzzkill, guys, but maybe we shouldn't joke about it or make fun of these people for how they spent their money. They are real humans. And there was another tweet that said, I don't know, man. I know we hate rich people, but I think if you're laughing at the idea of any non-evil person dying, perhaps the most nightmarish death imaginable, it may be time to log off for a little. And I thought that really put a lot of, you know, it really put it in perspective. It does actually, like, like really, just take a moment. I like this term, enter, how do you say, entertainment? Entertainmentification, I think, entertainmentification. Okay. All right, let me try and get this right. But this, 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 this new term, I absolutely agree. But it's not just individuals doing this. It's like, look at the way the media were covering it. I mean, again, going back to our... Um, our Bible, the Mail Online. Not sure. I'm going by to our, our, our main source of everything, the Mail Online. I mean, they actually showed a video of a Coca-Cola can being instantly crushed by water pressure in order to demonstrate the implosion of the submarine. And it didn't stop there. I actually went over and looked on TikTok and there's been over 10 billion views on Titan-related content. And I think there's been a, I mean, there's particularly a real fixation on the creepy sort of banging sounds apparently coming from the sub. And then there's even audio clips with people screaming and then there's an explosion. And there's a lot of this content that are like simulations and reenactments of what they think happened to the Titan, often accompanied by the Titanic soundtrack. And after a while, I was sort of scrolling through and it becomes sort of a bit morbidly fascinating. And you have to remind yourself that actually no official audio clips have ever been released from any of the sonar um, monitoring equipment. And, and, and they make that quite clear on Twitter because people were sharing as if they were official news sources in the middle of this sort of mission, as if they had got hold of the official clips. And I think that's the danger in these situations is like, it's really difficult to tell what is real news reporting or just pure fantasy. This Titan story has really gripped the world for seven days. What are your final thoughts on this? Well, um, you know, social media and the internet has completely changed the, the way that we consume news. And it feels like we've become hungry for increasingly greater quantities of, well, essentially sensationalist content. And as with any drug, we become more and more desensitized. And we forget that behind the headlines, there are complex, real people with real lives. Many of us grew up with the disaster movies from the 70s. Um, They appeal to us because they allow us to safely explore our primordial fears of death and survival and to Mm. think about what we would do differently to make sure that we came out of it unscathed. And at the same time, they helpfully distract us from the more banal yet pervasive problems in our everyday life. As humans, I think we spend quite, you know, we spend most of our lives walking a tightrope between our inevitable mortality and our constant need to feel safe and secure. So last week's Titan sub-disaster, 
I mean, it unfolded like something out of a Jules Verne novel with, with mm. many people watching on. They were gripped with shock and concern for the passengers. And, and for them, it was eliciting a strong sense of empathy. But for many others, it was an opportunity to channel the anger and powerlessness that we feel living in a fundamentally unequal and, and oftentimes painfully unfair society and to instead revel in the idea that a few of the 1% are somehow being punished for their hubris and greed. And it's really easy to forget that we're all human, that we all experience love, pain and fear, regardless of our bank balance. And also that it's possible to hold multiple competing feelings all at the same time, to feel both sad and angry that society places different values on different lives. And to acknowledge a person can make a choice you never would have done, but still feel sad when the consequences of that choice has a tragic outcome. And to realise that big tragedies are often just mirroring our own shadow and fears that already exist within us. Mm, That was brilliant. And I just wanted to say that I found this comment on Facebook. I just said to a friend, you know who isn't doing this? Women. (laughs) (laughs) And then this next one, dark humour is like food and clean water. Not everyone gets it. That's true. Yeah. So thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. Thank you to our lovely producer, Emily. If you enjoyed today's episode, please don't forget to leave a review and subscribe. It really does help us in reaching more people. You can also follow us on Instagram. Our handle is at S2TC Podcast. You can find out more about the show, get behind the scenes, come and say hello. Until then, see you next time. This podcast has been produced by Emily Crosby Media. 